Amen. Indeed, that's a great song and such a great truth and so well done. So I appreciate that this morning. Appreciate the emphasis of the words and the truth in the songs today. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. I hope you had a safe trip in this morning and some of the storm and rain that's come our way. Uh, quite a change from yesterday for sure. And uh, today we're continuing in this uh, short look at the duty of Christian Americans. Last week we talked about voting. So I have to ask how many of you have voted so far? Well, I am very proud of you. What's wrong with the rest of you? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's okay. You got a week, so you got time. Uh, I might even try to get back and vote a second time this week if I can. Um, so uh, it's uh, certainly an uh, interesting time of season. We're still grunting at TV commercials and, and uh, snarling at radio advertisements about politicians, and it's just that time of the year. To hear some of you wondering, why aren't they in prison already? What, you know, this, uh, it seems like they're casting all the, the worst things about them for sure. Well, today we continue. You've done your first duty uh, that we looked at, or the first one we looked at in our little series, and we'll finish it next week. Second one today is important, and we've, it's not going to be a surprise to us, I don't think. It's going to be important for us to look at. We're going to begin in Judges chapter 6 to look at a time when another nation was faced with some challenges and difficulties, and what God's response to them was, and what it leads us to in our duty of a Christian American this week. Judges chapter 6. Judges is a book about history of Israel covering a 300 plus year time frame between when they entered the promised land with Joshua and all of the battles that they had to win to claim the promised land that God had promised them and how God had delivered them through so many of those and the reality all of them and the time before the kings, before Saul. There's a period of time of 300 plus years in which there was no king. Scripture even makes a point of that a couple of times about there was no king and the people did that which was right in their own eyes. And in the challenges of the promised land, Israel found itself often being captives of the Canaanite nations. And there were many of them. These were pagan nations. They had that, that Middle Eastern, you know, that's a, that's a broad term, I realize, but that Middle Eastern terrorist mindset. Let's destroy them. Let's kill them. Let's make life so miserable, miserable for them. These Canaanite nations of the time, the Amorites, the Midianites, uh, the Philistines, we come across them in a couple of places and judges a little later with Samson. And these nations were a perpetual enemy of Israel. And Israel would find itself turning away from God. It's the most amazing set of cycles. It runs through it quite frequently. It just repeats itself. A generation is caught in this turmoil of being attacked by a surrounding nation. They're taken often into captivity or they're put into poverty situations. They call upon the Lord for a deliverer. That's really what the word judge means. You don't think of the word of the book of Judges as people in black robes in a courtroom. It's the word means a deliverer, someone who would bring about God's judgment. They would pray to God. God, we're in such desperate need. Send us a deliverer. God would answer their prayer in his mercy and grace. They would prosper under the leadership of a judge, sometimes for a few years, 
sometimes for a few decades. And then a new generation would rise up who had forgotten the lessons of the previous generation. They would start to turn and worship the idol gods of the pagan nations. They would forget God and they would just go about their merry way and soon they would find themselves in similar situations. So it's not, it's not the same story happening to the same people. It's the same story happening to different generations. And that cycle repeats itself over and over again through the book of Judges. And today we come to Judges chapter 6 to look at one of those cycles. I mean, you'll see it given to us in verse 1. We won't look at all of the verses or all the depth of these chapters, just a starting point for us. It says, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. What was their evil? They worshipped the idol gods. And the Lord delivered them into the hands, or into the hand of the Midianites for seven years. There's that judgment. The Midianites were one of those pagan nations. And they come and they bring Israel under their captive hand. And from verses 2 through 6, which we will not read, you will read, if you just glance at it, some of the difficulties they had. They were living in caves. They were hiding. When they tried to grow crops, the Midianites would find out about it and destroy their crops. They just had a miserable life. And so we see in verse 1, that's why they, um, that's why they were in this turmoil. So jump down to verse 7. We pick up the narrative. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. The word cried there is a word that means passionate prayers, passionate pleading. They realized that their existence, their future depended on the mercy of God. So a new generation now has learned this lesson. And so as it comes to pass, they cry unto the Lord because of the Midianites and the heavy hand that had been placed upon them. And in verse 8, we're told about a prophet. And the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel. This is the only time in the book of Judges that you see a prophet sent and to do a task of pronouncing to Israel God's word. And the prophet says unto them in verse 8, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt. Now remember the people of Israel in this turmoil of difficulty. They're being punished. They're being starved to death. They have no future. They have no hope. They have no way to defend themselves. They can, their, only, their only option is to call unto the Lord. And the Lord answers them not by telling them, here's some things to do. He answers them by telling them, here's some things you know, you need to know. I'm going to emphasize through these verses the, the I in the statements, because these are statements that God made. The Lord God of Israel says, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you forth out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you, and I drove them out from before you, and I gave you their land, and I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the God of the Amorites, in whose land ye dwell. God says to Israel in their time of turmoil, there's not something for you to do, there's something for you to know. And what is it they should know? Well, it's all given to us in the history lesson that the prophet brings. But verse 10 concludes with a, an important reminder. Ye have not obeyed my voice. In all of this, you have not obeyed my voice. 
If we were to continue reading chapter 6 and following, we come upon a familiar name, and that's the name of Gideon. Gideon will be the judge that God will send, the deliverer that God will send, and he will eventually use that army of 300 to overthrow the Midianites and eventually bring peace to the land for at least a while. And by the time you get to a couple chapters down, the same thing, the same cycle starts all over again. God says, I have something for you to know. Today I want us to find ourselves in this text a reflection of Israel as Americans. Something we need to know. A little bit of a history lesson to be reminded just exactly as the prophet had told Israel, here's what God wants you to be reminded of. So let's pray and we'll do that. Father, thank you for this day you've given us. Thank you for this place, this time, the capacity we have to be here. We indeed are a blessed people, and we are a blessed nation. And so we thank you with, with words and hearts of gratitude. Our songs this morning have expressed your love, and we echo that in our hearts this morning. The love that has redeemed us and brought us up from the miry pit of sin into a life, a new life in Christ where we have victory. And today we rejoice in that. And we again look to you, as Israel did, as our provision. And we pray that you will continue to guide and direct and lead in these days ahead. As we as a nation approach us the conclusion of this election, we pray that your will would be done and that righteousness will prevail across our land. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The words of the unnamed prophet. It takes, us, it takes Israel back a few hundred years they had to remember a history lesson that they might realize and remember again exactly what God had done for, in making them a nation and in providing for them throughout that great journey. We know the accounts of the story, the deliverance from Egypt. That's what the reference is. The deliverance of a generation from Egypt and the bondage that they knew there. How God had intervened with the plagues, the Passover, the Exodus, the Red Sea, the wilderness wanderings, and eventually the possession of the promised land. We know that account. We've read it in those Old Testament books, or at least we've seen the movie with Charlton Heston in it, right? We know the accounts of what is being referenced here. The message was clear from the prophet as God sent him. Remember, Israel, your existence and your identity is completely because of God. But the condemnation is equally as plain in verse 10. You have not obeyed God's voice. They ignored God's commands. They disregarded God's laws and statutes and gave no respect to God's promises. They had those first five books. They had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They had the record and the account, but they chose to ignore it. They refused the, their own heritage as God had intended and designed. As God's covenant nation, not just here in Judges, but really throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, Israel found itself often in desperate circumstances. And it all was because they forgot God they forsook God, and they forbid God. And whenever they cried to the Lord, and whenever they offered their passionate prayers, 
whenever their words were directed, Lord, forgive us, God would often precede his deliverance and his blessing and his favor with this same history lesson. He always points them back and says, remember where you were as a nation. You were slaves in Egypt, and yet now you've been brought out, and you've become an individual nation. He always seemed to point them back to that. They, every generation needed to hear it. The lesson is pretty obvious for one who's willing to see. The faithfulness of God in the past is evidence of God's faithfulness in the present and in the future. Now first, I am not a prophet. And second, America is not Israel. But like Israel of old, America needs to be reacquainted with the faithfulness of God in our national existence and of God's providential hand in our identity. We need to be reminded indeed that America is a miracle and that surely our existence and our identity are only because of God's blessing, his blessing in spiritual needs as well as physical needs, his blessings on our families and on our government, his blessings on our leaders, his blessings on our very founding. Like Israel, this nation needs to be reminded of God's intervention. It's true of any nation. Any group of people who chooses to forget God sets themselves on a path that becomes paved with confusion, despair, and unrest. All the things we've seen on the news these last few months. It's only the fruit of a people who have turned their backs on God. So as a nation, America needs to return to the biblical truth and the values that made her the land of moral strength and of bountiful prosperity. Americans, and especially many Christian Americans, have lost the vision of what this nation was intended to be. It's a vision well portrayed and first proposed by a preacher of the Pilgrim era. His name, John Witherspoon. He did not come with that first set of pilgrims in 1620. He would come a decade later in 1630. And on his way over as a preacher, preaching to his congregation on the ship, and then in later sermons, once he arrived in America, he represented a vision of an America that was a city set on a hill to be the light of the world, to be an example of God's grace and God's love and God's presence. It would be a vision repeated by presidents centuries later. In our generation, President Kennedy referred to it. Most recently, President Reagan referred to it, a city set on a hill. A city exercising religious freedom and self-governance. A city where moral strength, freedom, and courage were exercised abundantly. And through all of America's history, that thread of prayer has been woven through the fabric of our nation. 
prayer. It is our duty as Christian Americans to pray. Through all of America's history, prayer has been part of our national identity and existence. The pilgrims, when they arrived, by the way, that's 400 years ago. Everything else is going on, so we've lost sight of that. The pilgrims, when they arrived, as they struggled to carve out a very meager existence in a harsh New England environment. If you know much of that story, we can only imagine what it would have been like to have been one of those 102 pilgrims who came over on that little ship, the Mayflower. Stories and accounts are recorded that tell us how they arrived at the sea, the shoreline. What an exciting event that must have been. Look, there's land. We see trees. Everyone rushes to the side of the ship or to a port window to see what they can, what they can view as their new home. What would it be like? The accounts are told of how they approached the land and then turned south that they might see and view the land for a while. The ship was turned and they worked their way back up looking for a place where they could, they could anchor the ship and try to set their bearings on what, would, what to do next. Over the next many months, the pilgrims would be launched out. The men would go out in short boats to the shoreline to try and find out what's there. Hunting parties would go, expedition parties. They would talk about the abundance of trees and animals that they would find and the harvest of hunting that was available. They would come across evidence of the Native Americans, some crop remains, burial grounds, even traps that were set for animals. A story is told of one of the pilgrims getting caught in an animal trap the Indians had made and how the pilgrims were so amazed at the ingenuity of that. It was indeed a harsh winter that first year. And we remember that of the 102 pilgrims that came, 51 of them, half, died that first winter. Disease, insufficiency of medicine and medical care, lack of proper food, even accidents. The, the story is told of the hunting party that went out one morning, left on the boat to go in to the shoreline and see what they could discover and hunt to bring back as food for, the, for those occupants on the ship. And they came back, one of the men, to find out his wife had fallen overboard in the slippery ice of the, of, um, of the deck. One of the women had slipped and fallen overboard into the icy waters and drowned. That's just one story of many. Half of them died that first winter. And yet the record is the pilgrims continued in prayer and faithfulness. From the first landing of the pilgrims, to that first thanksgiving, the pilgrims knew that praying to God to bless their efforts would be their only avenue to success, even in the most difficult of times. And of course, as the new world opened up, many came for various reasons, but a majority of them who came were Christians, Christians of many denominations, for sure. They all brought their faith, their families, and their aspirations for freedom. There were the Episcopalians, the Quakers, the Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Congregationalists, the Dutch Reformed, and the Moravians. 
They all established their churches and their congregations and their communities based on biblical values. It's a topic for another time, but I always find it interesting to read a bit of the Baptist history in our land. Of Roger Williams in the Northeast who took his Baptist convictions and settled in a city named Providence. He named Providence because it was a place where God had led him to establish the first Baptist community. I'm always interested to read the story of Shubal Stearns, a Baptist from the Northeast whom God called to take the message and be a missionary to the far outreach frontier. He came to Virginia but wasn't satisfied there. He said, I'd have no peace that this is where the Lord would let me settle, so he continued to move on. He found himself in the frontier of North Carolina, settling at Sandy Creek, and there establishing a Baptist community whose history and whose outreach has impacted all across the Southeast, particularly in our state. By the time you get to the early mid-1700s, the influence of the Christian communities was starting to be recognized. And of course, this country was growing, the colonies were growing. Farms, villages, and communities, even some large cities that rivaled those of Europe began to spring up along the eastern shoreline. New York, Boston, Philadelphia became important places, not only for the colonists, but also for the Europeans. By the 1730s, there was a move starting to happen. There was a revival in the churches and in the educational institutions. Speakers such as Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. Our pastors recently mentioned David Brainerd of that very same generation. And in the 1730s, what history now calls the first great American awakening would come about. Names like Jonathan Edwards, an American evangelist, preacher, educator, pastor, a man who wore so many hats in his world, and a British evangelist named George Whitfield, a British evangelist, came to America, traveled some 5,000 miles on horseback and carriage and walking, preached 350 sermons, helped to bring about this great revival. Whitfield was not fit for many of the pulpits of his day. He was pretty energetic. He was very straightforward. He preached the truth of the gospel. And you know who often had closed doors? The churches. That's not their style. That's not the message we preach. So what did Whitfield do? He would go to the fields. He would go to the streets, even the streets of Philadelphia, where the records are the people would line up as far as you could see down the street, and then turn to this corner and see the people lined up as far as you could see down the street. And then turn to this corner and see the people lined up as far as you could see down the street to hear him preach. Indeed, the first great American awakening had an impact upon the soul of Americans. The Lord blessed the preaching, certainly from the pulpits. It's not that they were all closed. There were many great pulpiteers and preachers of the gospel. But he also blessed the preaching that was done in those fields. Shubal Stearns, starting his Baptist work, began preaching in the field because it was the only place he could gather the people. Americans were understanding that the emptiness of religious ritual was not 
sufficient for their relationship with God. That was only to be found in saving faith as Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. The impact of, across the land was phenomenal. Ben Franklin even commented that in Philadelphia, during his evening walks of the time, that you, he could hardly walk down the street without passing a house where he heard hymns being sung, the Bible being read, or prayers being given. What an impact it had. God was working wondrously to prepare a generation for the challenge ahead, the challenge of independence. They had to have the spiritual strength to accomplish what would lie ahead in the decades. But that talk of independence would begin as a hush. After all, they're British colonists. Such talk would be worthy of treason, and the penalty that came with it was death. Talk of independence would only intensify as Britain and France fought a war that included the American colonies. We know it as the French and Indian War here. And the financial stress that King George III and the Parliament put on the colonists was overbearing. We know the phrase taxation without representation from, as a carryover from some of that thought. And as this year marks that 400th anniversary of those pilgrims who set sail for a new world in search of religious freedom, and then as we turn the pages in our history book and think about a century and a half later, the American colonies would gain their independence from Britain, the most influential and powerful nation on earth at the time. How could such a thing be? France could not defeat Britain. Spain could not defeat Britain. Allied countries of Europe could not defeat Britain. How could these meager 13 colonies who really had no army at all hope to stand against the great British Empire? The difference was not in weaponry of man's making. The difference was in the weaponry of spiritual influence. The influence of biblical truth was evident from the start. As the talk of independence was spreading, the associated idea was we can never do this without God's influence. It became part of the mottos of battle cries. It became part of the influence of newspapers and publications speaking of independence. It even became part of the flags. One such flag, if you notice some, some in the parking lot this morning, is called the Liberty Tree flag. And on that flag is the, the phrase, an appeal to heaven. The colonists knew that this was not just a, a fight for their political independence, it was also a fight for their spiritual independence. And to succeed in such an endeavor meant to lay the cause at the very throne of God himself and appeal to heaven. Indeed, from the Pilgrim's first prayers to the meetings of the Continental Congress, the wording of the Declaration of Independence, various presidential proclamations over the ages, God's presence leading and blessing have been sought and recognized by generations of Americans. America has not been perfect. We have fallen short of those ideals which are established for us by our founding fathers. But nonetheless, we strive to overcome and to see how we can fulfill the calling of a land 
where life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, religious freedom, self-preservation are all integrated. As talk of independence and even more the threats from the British became more obvious to the American colonies, it became necessary for there to be a body, a political body of the colonists to help address a strategy and make plans moving forward. Thirteen individual colonies were no match against the one England. But maybe together we could find the strength to set forth a strategy and move toward this call of independence that was beginning to sweep across the land. So indeed, in September 1774, 40 men met together in Carpenter's Hall, Philadelphia. These 40 men were representatives of all the colonies. Men who are the forefathers that we often know by name. But this would be the first time they would meet. The Virginians would meet the Carolinians, who would meet the New Yorkers, who would meet those from Pennsylvania. It was their first time to meet. And though their names are familiar to us now, then they were just representatives from the colonies. This first meeting of what's called the Continental Congress established the pace upon which America's next many years would be directed. What was that first meeting like? How would they start? Where would they find their strength and guidance? Well, it didn't take long before the proposal was made that the entire Congress should start with a prayer, a moment of prayer. We know this because John Adams, certainly a name we recognize, was such a great writer of letters to his wife, Abigail. They would have enjoyed social media, but in the meantime, letter writing was their means of communication. So he in Philadelphia, and she in Massachusetts, he would write letters. And we have in our National Archives a letter that he wrote to his wife about that first meeting of these 40 American representatives. I quote portions of it. When the Congress first met, he says, Mr. Cushing made a motion that it should be open with prayer. However, it was opposed by Mr. Jay of New York and Mr. Rutledge of South Carolina. What was their disagreement with the proposal? It's because there were so many different religious groups there. They felt like they were so divided as religious sects that they couldn't come together even to pray. After all, there were Episcopalians and Quakers and Anabaptists and Presbyterians and Congregationalists. How is it that we could all pray together? Seems like an odd thought to us today. However, Mr. Sam Adams arose and spoke to the body and said, I am no bigot, and I could hear a prayer. I would join in with a prayer of a gentleman of piety and virtue who was at the same time a friend of his country. And so the invitation was given to Pastor Jacob Duchesne, the pastor at Christ Church there in Philadelphia. He was a local clergyman, and he was someone who had been recognized for his character, for his humility, for his friendship to our nation and to the cause of independence. 
I'm thinking about changing my sermon to Noah's Ark here, just in case you're wondering. No, we'll stay with where we're at. Word had reached, so the next morning, Jacob Duchesne comes to lead the group in their first official act of prayer for, for this cause of independence. But that same morning, word had arrived that the British had invaded Boston, had raided Boston. It sent shockwaves through the communities of Massachusetts because they thought, this is it, the British are going to stomp us out before it even gets started. Word had gotten to Philadelphia about the raid, and the understandable fear that was cast upon the people. This same morning, when Pastor Duchesne shows up to pray, John Adams makes account of the fact that it had a great effect upon the audience to hear of this raid of the British into Boston. But nonetheless, they had made their commitments and their plans to pray. Pastor Duchesne, before he prayed, read a psalm he then read some prayers, which sounds odd to, uh, odd to us, but that was part of their, their religious practice of the day, was to read some prayers that had been written and recorded in a book of prayers. So he did that. But then to, to, to the surprise of everyone, he offered a prayer of his own heart, not to read it, but just to express it. John Adams, again in his letter, says of that prayer, His unexpected prayer filled the heart of every man present. I must confess, I never heard a better prayer or one so well pronounced. It was prayed with such fervor and zeal, such earnestness and emotion, and in language so elegant and sublime. All for America, for the Congress, for the providence of Massachusetts Bay, and especially the town of Boston. It had, he said, an excellent effect upon everyone there. Indeed, the first act of the first assembly of American representatives was an act of prayer. Here we are 246 years later. We need to remember that prayer still has the capacity to draw upon the strength of God to move forward. And of course, we know as Christians, as Bible-centered Christians, the value of prayer doesn't have to be convinced of us. We know its value. A few weeks ago, a prayer march was held in Washington, D.C. We, we had some discussions about participating, but it just seemed too many logistical things to happen. And, you know, the overshadowing of the virus, the city was made not to participate. So maybe you watched, as I did, watched some of it to see how it was being exercised, and thankful of the tens of thousands who did show up. Franklin Graham has called again for a prayer and fasting of today, and I think appropriately so. But the thought began to generate, what can we do as a body of believers? What can we do as a congregation intending to remember the necessity of prayer in this time for our nation? And so as I close, I want to introduce to you just briefly the prayer walk America that we are starting this afternoon, just bring your umbrella. 
Prayer Walk America is our version of giving each of us an opportunity to pray for the needs of our nation. As you drove in this morning, if you look beyond the rain, you may have noticed some flags around our parking lot. One of them became victim of the storm and wind. We're going to have to reattach it this afternoon. But there's flags around our parking lot. We've established six prayer stations that you can walk. Just simply walk up the perimeter of our front parking lot. These, each prayer station has a particular emphasis. Prayer station one, the faith of our founders. Number two, the courage of our defenders. Number three, the faithfulness of our churches. Number four, the leadership of our communities. Number five, the righteousness of our nation. And number six, the security of our future. This prayer walk will start this afternoon as weather allows. It will remain open, kind of an odd word to say, but it's there. It'll, be, it'll run through the election. Because once again, we think it's important that a nation be called to pray. And we'll not be able to find ourselves in Washington or other such places to do it, so let's do it right here on our church property. So what's been put up are flags and banners appropriate for each of these six stations. And then as you go through the stations, we have a booklet for you. These will be available as you leave. So feel free to take one, read through it before you even get here. Each one describes briefly the flag or banner that's there, the, what the station is about. There are Bible verses that go with each station. There are some insights about why this need is important and the value of it. There's a quote from an American. And then there are four prayer points for each station. And they're listed in here. So the simplicity of this is you take this with you as a couple, as a family. If you go as a family, I want the, you know, I want to go as a group. Read it out loud. Let the children hear it. Let them join with you. And then they'll take some time to walk, just, you know, a few seconds to walk to the next. They're at the light poles. They're at the building. They're at the flagpoles. It's very easy to see. And walk through this. We're asking you to commit yourself to come once. Doesn't have to be today. This will run through the election. Come once. Commit to coming once. Husband and wife or family. By yourself. It's open 24 hours a day. Come at 3 o'clock in the morning. Do what's convenient for you. Do what the Lord impresses upon your heart. Commit to come once, but be willing to come more. Help us spread the word. We're not launching a big advertising campaign about this. We need you to help us. Use your contacts. Even if you have to use a telephone and call somebody. Use your social media. Invite others to come. I mean, we, we have flyers that have already been distributed in our community. We're inviting the community to come. These booklets will be available at a station we're setting up at the very, I'm pointing this way because it's on this side. You'll see a box there with a sign that says, take a start here with a booklet. So anybody can come, take a booklet, walk through the stations. Then take the booklet home with you. Let it be a prayer reminder for the times you'll pray there. Because we don't want you just to pray here, obviously. This is an important election. Our national leaders and our Christian influence, 
certainly are right to call our nation to prayer. And we're going to do our part in our community and hopefully spread the word. We'd love to see hundreds come to this, maybe more, just to lift up our heart, to join our voice in with the prayers of our nation for our nation and for the election. I close with this. George Washington, in his first inaugural address, in 1789 said, quote, no people can, bound, can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand of God, which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. He realized it. George Washington realized that we are a people that should acknowledge and adore the invisible hand of God in our nation. Let's once again do that. And let's see how prayer will move forward this nation into the greatness of a city set on a hill, showing forth the great light of God's grace and glory. Let us pray as that first Continental Congress did. They realized their future depended on it. May our prayers have a similar thought. And let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the moments you've given to us to come and worship, for a place to come and worship for a country where freedom of worship, freedom of religion is part of the heritage of our national DNA. And we acknowledge, as our first president did, we acknowledge and adore the invisible hand that has directed and guided and blessed this country in its birth and in its continuance since then. May this prayer walk be dedicated to you for the purpose of seeing this nation again called to righteousness. And may the prayers of many be lifted up for the purpose of seeing this nation move toward another awakening, a time when God's word has such a great influence across the land. We would pray for it and pray that it might begin here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.